0: You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jesse Shiman, co-founder and CEO at Paper Cup. Jesse, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, James. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So I, I thought we'd start off, you know, I looked at your backgrounds and I noticed that you studied finance and economics in undergrad at NYU. So you are- originally an American, right, but then yeah. ended up making your way to London Business School for, graduate, for your graduate program. So why London? You know, why the UK? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. So, well, yeah, it would have been interesting actually to ask listeners if by the end of this, they still thought I was American or British, because apparently I've already lost most of my accent. And I think the biggest insult that I got was from an interview, when we were interviewing a candidate who claimed they thought I was British. Not that I have anything against the British, I'm thrilled to be here, but I, I felt like I was still more American than I actually, <laughs> anyway. What did the uh, Brits
0: say? Do they think that you're an American?
1: Everyone, yeah, that's usually a no-brainer for yeah, anybody sure. that's native to here, so I don't know, I don't know what it is that I've lost, but anyway, uh, yeah, background is, so I grew up in, in New Jersey, New York, always thought I would be an NBA player when I was five, and I still do, hope. That that's still gonna be the case, but let's see. Yeah. Um, went to NYU's undergrad business school called Stern, studied finance economics, was basically told that I have to become an investment banker, otherwise I'm a life failure. More so by the school and everybody else in the actual course. Um, started off, they had, you know, you do your classic junior year summer internship, which I did at Credit Suisse in the investment banking division in Global Energy. Uh, thought it was awful and uh was not so down for it and wanted to figure out what a career change would be also at the same time around the same time i also studied in Prague and through nyu's uh sister school there and randomly made a trip to london to visit a friend of mine and spontaneously met miranda who's my now wife uh, on that trip
0: amazing how did that happen
1: how did that happen uh a friend of mine said, "Let's go to, uh, let's go grab some food the day before the day that I was leaving." And I said, "That's great." He sugge- he asked if he could invite Miranda, who I had no idea who she was, and we still tell different stories. So maybe you should get her on the podcast one <laughs> day.
0: Fact okay. checker. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. And uh, he asked if he could invite her. I said, yeah, she got, he got on the phone to her. She said, sorry, I can't make it. I took the phone from him and said, Miranda, you have no choice, but to actually come. <laughs> she said, who is this? I said, yes, and I've heard a ton about you and I've been waiting to meet you. Total lie. had no idea who she was. <laughs> she eventually came. Um, um, and then, yeah, the rest
0: was a crazy
1: story. Thank then, God
0: you did that, huh? So, so uh, how did this all circle back when you finally made your way to the UK?
1: Yeah, so then came back post-NYU, studying in Prague, came back to New York, wanted to figure stuff out, and um, continued dating Miranda, uh, I guess, well, remotely and semi-remotely by flying over to London. Quite often, Miranda moved to New York for a bit, and then we got married quite soon after college, and then I moved out to uh, London right away, so right after graduating, basically.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so Miranda perhaps was a big motivating factor in your decision to do grad school in London, huh?
1: Well, so there's actually no grad school. The LBS thing is it was a course that I did while at Deloitte. Deloitte ah, I see. To- okay,
0: yeah, so you go into consulting. Basically, you graduate, you move to London, you enter consulting. Okay, so uh, why, why that change in career path, right? You said everyone's telling you go iBanking, right, work on Wall Street. That's what, you know, Stern turns them out. Uh, mm-hmm. What made you decide to go a different route?
1: So I to, to be honest it was more like what sort of industry would be would be flexible enough such that I can try a range of things and also uh what would actually what could support a visa so I I actually tried applying to McKinsey BCG Bain all the top consulting firms and all of them rejected me saying start off in New York and then internally transfer don't try and start off in London makes sense Which, which I didn't, which I wasn't thrilled with. And, but the the big audit and consulting behemoths, namely Deloitte, PwC and the like, were willing to actually sponsor visas even though I was from New York. So that's the main reason why, so consulting was mainly because I wanted the flexibility as everybody does when they join as a consultant and have no idea what they want to do with their career, which I didn't really. I know I wanted to build things, but didn't really know where, how, what. So I started off in consulting in Deloitte, uh, and Deloitte specifically, because they were willing to sponsor basically a visa at the outset, despite being a fresh grad, and even though they, yeah, they, they have what, tens of thousands of applications. I was lucky enough to get a spot.
0: Amazing! Wow, good for you. And what types of projects were you working on for Deloitte?
1: Yeah, so Deloitte at the start, I was in their technology consulting arm, which was uh, advising on application migrations and data center consolidation projects, which sound as gruesome and painful
0: (laughs) i was gonna say all the fun sexy stuff huh
1: exactly um at least i got to put on my resume but i i quickly grew quite frustrated with traditional consulting because i just felt it was just I, i personally just felt it was too detached i wanted to build things and i didn't love it and that probably happened eight months in and then um, I realized, well, hey, look, Deloitte is still an eighteen thousand-person company in London, generates three and, and a half billion pounds a year. Like, this is still a lucrative le- revenue-generating business that has the respect of almost every enterprise client that you can imagine—HSBC, um, UBS, Shell, like any any client that you can imagine—they have some sort of relationship with. And I thought, very naively. And almost foolishly, oh well, why don't we just play this intermediary and get um, enterprises to start working more closely with startups? Because it doesn't seem like somebody's broken that relationship quite well. And this was back in 2013, so the, the concept of corporate venture capital still existed. But I think in the guise that we did, it didn't. It wasn't. It certainly wasn't so present in Europe. But though you did have a lot of the precedents already set in the U.S. with the likes of uh, like Comcast Ventures and and some of the others that were already well-established corporate venturing arms that didn't exist so much in Europe. So I went and I found like anybody who was willing to stock, talk startups in Deloitte. And then soon thereafter is when we, with, with four other guys, we, we basically co-launched what's called Deloitte, what is now called Deloitte Ventures. Um, and that was basically a technology incubator, which took ideas and proof of concepts and that that consultants actually suggested throughout the business and tried making them into actual products as well as Deloitte's first equity investment armor into early stage startups, which was quite controversial because A, you had to almost justify taking cash from partners' pockets that would have been distributable distributable, distributable towards their equity points that they had in the business. And secondly, because you had to explain concepts to them that were quite uh, foreign to Excel, PowerPoint, and the usual maps that they were used to seeing and there's okay. some of the brightest people that you've seen but the, this is like we were inv- like we were suggesting to invest in businesses that were very far into the traditional door model
0: yeah wow that's fascinating so why startups in the first place what intrigued you to say hey let's go down this road and then i have a few follow-up questions well let's start there
1: so i think I, like i always had a hunger I, I i always had a like just this real keenness and excitement to to build things even even from when i was younger one thing that i did for example my dad's a physician and he sees a bunch of patients and he always complained that he, he never knew where the patients actually heard of him and where they came from so i built using a like a combination of this excel model that i built plus an online form and this is back in like mid two thousand, so it wasn't mid to late two thousand. so it wasn't it was There weren't that many SaaS products you could actually use. And I basically just built a very basic patient tracking system that would record all the data and figure out and highlight him on a monthly basis where his patients were coming from. So referrals, um, insurance companies, or or other doctors, and then figuring out which doctors he then needed to build the relationships with. Just a small example of things like these side projects that I love doing. Another thing I did with a bunch of my friends was uh launch a uh, charity basketball tournament in memory of one of our good friends that passed away and mm-hmm. we ended up it was awesome i mean it ended up being as as big as uh 300 players in a single tournament and we raised close to 10 grand each year and it was it was really cool so i think yeah i always just had this i get really excited and intensely passionate about the things that i do and so building things is often a good outlet to actually allow that passion to manifest itself so i think yeah. that's where the building nature came in. And and that was probably also largely just watching my dad do it as somebody who moved from Canada, didn't have much to his name at all, and, and just built his, his own practice as a physician. Hmm. Um, and I, I assume that's a large part to where this came from.
0: Yeah, wow. So what what part of Canada is your dad from?
1: From Toronto.
0: Okay, so, very cool. So, so you're half Canadian.
1: Yes, I have a Canadian passport. That's actually how I first was able to get entry into the UK because I didn't, because when McKinsey and BCG said uh, you're no one to us unless you're a native Brit, I said, okay, well, I know (laughs) Canada has this, what felt like a random youth mobility scheme channel to actually get from Canada into the UK. I actually got that visa, Hmm. uh, though it quickly expired. (laughs)
0: Fair enough. I don't know if we've ever talked about, there's like so many funny parallels between our stories, but my dad is from Halifax. Oh, really? uh, Yeah, yeah. So he uh, immigrated, well, his dad was in the Canadian Navy, and so they moved around a lot as kids. And then um, when my grandfather retired from the Navy, he joined NATO and uh, worked mostly in the US. So my dad um, grew up kind of between Canada and the States and became a citizen in the 80s uh but that's like that's first of all i'm also half canadian i don't have the passport but should probably get it one of these days and um and kind of like you i went to oh i went to usc film school right so we were on other opposite sides of the coast but i went into this program that's designed to churn out people to work in hollywood right like go work on big blockbuster films and entertainment and i quickly realized like hey that's not me like i just was not interested in The creative side or the technical aspects of filmmaking, I had grown up like making movies with my friends and just kind of horsing around like pre-YouTube. Like I wish YouTube had existed when I was a kid because that probably would have changed my outlook on things. But I ended up, you know, deciding, uh, oh, hey, well, I'm, you know, I switched into business and I'll probably just go into consulting and just thought I was going to work in corporate America. So I had accepted a job to do technology consulting in New York, like coming out of school, but just fell into working at this startup, like as an internship, part-time job, my senior year right before graduation and then right as i was getting ready to 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 move and leave they're like hey why don't you stick around and that's like what set me on my startup journey wow yeah was
1: there a trigger point that you realized that going into filmmaking or production wasn't your thing like what What made you realize it wasn't true?
0: So interestingly enough, yeah, I worked at the college television station. So Trojan Vision at USC is this, uh, what is actually the largest TV station in the country. So we programmed to over 1.2 million households, as well as all the students on campus. We had like all these kind of affiliate distribution deals. And um, I started off my freshman year just like wanting to work, like throwing myself into the film program, cut my teeth on whatever I could do. So I was working as like a producer on a show and, you know, on camera, like behind the scenes on stuff. And then it was like, oh, I kind of like this producing thing. And I became an executive producer the next year running the show. And then the year after that, they were like, hey, do you want to run the station? And I became the general manager. And, And it was just like being on the business side. I was like, this is what I like. I like the business side of media and entertainment. And they were like, you're kind of good at this, why don't you take some business classes? And so uh, I did, right? Here I am like this junior, uh, third year student, right? In classes with all these freshmen who are just like, you know, goofing off and enjoying their first year of school. And I'm like, I want to be here. I want to learn like leadership and statistics and communication. And that, I was like, this is where I should have been all along. So I switched halfway through, ended up doing business in poly sci, and poli-sci and I got a minor in film. Very cool. Yeah, so that's the origin story. Wow. Yeah. But uh you're doing all this stuff with startups and it sounds like you are just innately a builder and a bit entrepreneurial at your core. So, um you know, what how did you shift your focus within Deloitte and convince them to say, "Hey, I'm going to focus on leading venture investments and brokering partnerships between startups and maybe Deloitte clients that are these more established you know, Fortune 500 players, etc." H- how did that come about?
1: Mm. Um I I I just well, first of all, on the one hand, I I knew that I just I couldn't stand doing more consulting oriented work. I think that was one probably forcing function. And then the separate one was there there just had to be some application that could work because Deloitte is this really well respected brand and I just knew there had to be some f- construct that would allow them to actually work with startups, whether that, that was through investments, joint ventures or, or proof of concepts, whatever it might have been. And so I just, I literally hunted and I found the people that were already thinking along similar wavelengths. Um, and so we just started talking and that's when we started doing it uh, tangentially on the side until it built up enough momentum that we got uh, some partner backing. And we're able to actually carve out a separate unit and build out a team.
0: Amazing. And what inspired you to launch Paper Cup? I mean, why you know, pull the ripcord and leave the safe, cushy job at Deloitte and do your own thing?
1: Yeah, so Deloitte I left after two and a bit years because the, the, the expected frustrations of just trying to build within a big corporate where you have to convince partners on almost each step that you take. And then I actually went to Octopus, which is an investment fund based in London, I think they have something like $7 billion dollars pounds under management, largely known for tax efficient investment, but they're also really well known VC fund out in Europe. Um, and so I joined their their incubator to help build out their pipeline of ideas as well as launch a wealth technology platform. So I did that, which is now called Octopus Wealth and exists and is launched and fully functioning uh, wealth management tool and service for financial advisors. but. Um I then had a again similar frustration. I guess that was actually more of a realization of if you're going to build within a corporate or within a business, then you just you will not get the same almost tenacity and commitment and excitement as you would if it's just built from the ground up with other people who are almost going to war with you and experiencing the day in, day out. Like if you're walking into a multi-floor building that has you know, the $800 ergonomic chairs, your, um, you know, your, your automated standing desk, uh, like all the perks that you can imagine, you just, you're not in the sort of environment that's going to push people to like really care and try and build this out as what is required as part of a startup. And I just felt like I had to leave and it got to the end of it where um, I just, I, I actually made the decision that I was going to leave and I just started working on random ideas. So one that, I, one idea that I was working on was basically a recruitment platform where I was naive again, but I think you have to be naive in order to actually try something quite, uh, ambitious. But basically I had this idea where recru- everybody says recruitment sucks, still hasn't been solved. What can you do to solve it? So I thought, what if you brought the reference process at to the beginning of the interview? process and you actually collected feedback from people that know the candidate in an anonymized way, but that give you a sense of whether or not they'd be a good fit. Sounded like a good idea on paper. So I started working on that, uh, created my slide deck, which showed that it would be a billion dollar business, did everything you can do. Um, And I basically made the decision to leave Octopus. And in the last week, probably close to before, uh, sorry, when I made the decision and handed in my notice, three months notice, one of the directors there, uh, actually suggested that I look at Entrepreneur First, which is um, a deep tech technology accelerator that, or they call themselves talent investors, that basically puts together a bunch of uh, like really ambitious people in a room that are like-minded in the sense that they want to build something. It's largely dominated by um, Cambridge, Oxford, UCL, PhDs and masters who are highly technical and incredibly brilliant. I clearly don't fall into that camp because just wasn't my background uh and they are certainly far smarter than I am and but I joined at, so, but a small proportion of the people that would join would be more product and business oriented people obviously because you run a couple people together in that regard um, and so he suggests he pushed me to apply to entrepreneur first which I did so I reached out to the founders uh, one of them well specifically Matt Clifford uh, and Alice as well and then got accepted into EF asked octopus if i went to the ceo of octopus and said do you mind cutting my notice period much shorter because this program is actually starting in a few weeks time uh and i just went and i started at ef uh at entrepreneur first and then just to quickly move on to the paper cup side um so i start i I was first working on that recruitment idea at the outset but a few the way that it works basically is they literally put 100 people in a room and just said go and it's a it's a risky model because the likelihood of you finding somebody that you can actually build out a really long-term relationship with and work well with and also discover and land on an idea that's actually worth building is quite low. But I think you go through enough rotations and spontaneous introductions such that you'll hopefully find somebody that you have a strong hunch is a good fit for you. So about three weeks in is when I sat down with my now co-founder, Jamon, and I said, Hey, Jawan, like, like, what do you want to do? Because typically you ask somebody, "Is like, okay, wh- what is it that you want to do? What do you want to build? What do you think? What's, what's your novelty? What can you bring to the table? Sure. And for me, I was trying to push hard on this recruitment idea, and he's like,
0: yeah.
1: I want to build a robust speaker-adaptive, speaker-adaptive cross-lingual speech system. I said, what the hell does that mean? I literally <laughs> have no idea what you're talking about. I said, uh-huh. Well, I still remember this. I said We were sitting in a coffee shop across from the Biscuit Factory, which is where EF famously is located. And I said, if my niece, who's five years old, but also me, walks into the do- <laughs> walks into the room and says, what, what is it that you can build? He said, something along the lines of, like, like, I think I figured out a way or have an idea of how to actually translate voices into another language so that you can be heard in Spanish, German, or Portuguese. Yeah. And I said, that sounds flipping cool. Yeah. Um, where do you think we can take this? And he was like, what if you can watch Robert Downey Jr., but in Portuguese and French? Or what if you could watch BBC News live in your own language? And then we started dreaming about all the applications of saying, okay, well, it's not actually just premium content, but what about all the stuff on YouTube and Facebook and Snapchat and what about even interpersonal communication? Just imagine you being able to walk into any room and speak to anybody of any background, yet not mm-hmm. have to sacrifice who you are because you can actually port over your voice into that language. Yeah. Almost the babble fish dream. And that was the enticing starting point. And He was just this stubborn, highly technical, and one of the most capable and smartest people I've ever met that it felt like a no-brainer to me. Um, and it was a dangerous move, don't get me wrong, because I had no idea if the relationship would work, but thankfully, he's, I couldn't ask for a better partner, and we thankfully get on incredibly well and have built Paper Cup to a limited extent of what it is now, just thanks to the relationship that we have.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. What a great way to meet a co-founder and build a shared vision towards you know, taking some really cool technology and identifying those applications. Um, Had he done a lot of this research already? What was his background that enabled him to see the the future here?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question to cover because otherwise it sounds like he just like Googled highly technical (laughs) text-to-speech. So Juman studied undergrad in Cambridge and then uh, did master's and focused in a few areas, but it was a crossover of machine learning, computational linguistics, and speech synthesis or text-to-speech systems. And specifically his thesis is on a topic called speaker adaptive speech processing, which means how do you how do you look at speech voice like any person's voice and try and identify it as that individual so how can you what, what how can you decompose that into identifiable characteristics that means I know this is James speaking or I know it's now Jesse speaking and that's what he did his thesis on so by extension, not only how cute can you identify, but how if you can identify those characteristics in a language-independent way and detach my voice from English, but instead identify the independent characteristics, then you can actually part those over into the target language, into Spanish, German, French, those independent characteristics, and superimpose them onto the language and allow me to basically speak that alternative language.
0: Very cool. Wow. So what was it like being a first-time founder, right? Obviously you'd been in and around startups quite a bit at Deloitte and then founder first and Octopus, right? You had all these touch points, all these opportunities to work with other entrepreneurs, but now you were kind of doing it yourself for the first time. What was that experience like?
1: I loved every second of it. I, I just, it always felt, and it still has, like it's, it's, it's hard and it's, it's not my, my, my father-in-law says it really well. It, it It's never better than the brochure. certainly not for startups you see all these posts on LinkedIn and, and everybody says this like under the hood it's it's a much more difficult challenging uncertain journey but it felt so it felt like it was really the thing that I wanted to be doing I loved the grueling nature of it I loved the intensity that it demanded um I loved the the range of things that you have to try and tackle it's like almost everything is uncertain how do you price it how do you build it who do you recruit how do you raise financing how do you know if you're doing the right thing all of these were these like incredibly challenging profound questions that needed answering and that still need answering but I really embraced trying to trying to do whatever I possibly could to tackle them and so I I really genuinely loved it and I and I'm genuinely thankful for being able to do it and to continue doing it
0: that's amazing. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is: Are there any downsides to this incredible technology that you're developing? Right? I mean, is there a possibility that you know this synthetic voice application could be used for nefarious purposes? Right? For for phishing scams or mm-hmm. for deep fakes? Right? We've already seen deep fakes of public figures or politicians. We're living in an era of fake news. Is there concern that you know this technology could be used for um, for the wrong reasons?
1: Yeah. Um, so let let me just actually backtrack and explain what we do. Yeah, Uh, it might be helpful. So (laughs) the the concept is, is your voice in any language. That's like the ultimate mission to say, whatever, whatever medium, whatever piece of content or form of communication has voice. We want that to be consumable in any language, the more immediate. So I call that basically the, the, basically, like I said, the, the long term vision. The more immediate mission, so to speak, which is probably more medium term, is to make specifically videos watchable in any language. And the way in which we're doing that is we're actually translating the voice track on videos from one language to another and making that voice sound similar to the original people. That way, people can actually watch in their own native language. So, and we're first targeting creators that upload to YouTube, as an example, or digital media companies. Actually take Sky News as an example, one of our investors, but also one of our first customers. We basically take Sky News clips, take the original asset in English, translate it into Spanish with a Spanish-generated voice, make sure those voices sound similar to the original speakers, and then upload it onto YouTube. And in that way, native Spanish speakers can actually consume the same content that we do, but in their own language.
0: And I imagine that's much more cost-effective and faster than traditional dubbing, you know, subtitling, other manual alternatives.
1: Yeah, I think the market that we like, the way that I see it is that dubbing, given dubbing, dubbing is such an archaic and obsolete industry in the sense that it's constructed in a way that only if you're able to spend typically, only if you're able to spend like thousands of dollars per hour per language, is it something that's even accessible to you. So when you even think about the studios, Netflix, as an example, wants to target translating into probably by now probably 25 30 languages and that's dubbing not just subtitling they often will try and the ideal is to target that of course because they're now in what 150 plus countries and they'd want to try and target that the challenge even for netflix which is the deepest pockets or of the deepest pockets out there the struggle if you ask their localization team is cost and labor and time and so if if netflix the premium of premium struggles with it all the more so the 99.9 percent of content that sits beneath netflix will struggle with the same challenge and that's especially the case for creators or media companies that are uploading in, in such high frequencies and volumes onto platforms like youtube snapchat and their own operated platforms that there's no way they could afford from a cost or time perspective um, traditional dubbing which is why they don't do it so most if not all like literally again 99 plus percent of content on these major platforms are shackled to a single language so the idea is let's take these what is it it's like 500 hours that are uploaded every minute or so to youtube i forget the number but there are what a billion two billion active users every month the sheer amount of content that's being consumed imagine if we can make that accessible to the six and a half billion people that don't speak english and that's effectively what we're trying to do now. I'll actually play a sample just so that you, like people can actually sure, hear do it. what it sounds like, cause that's always fun. So what I'll first do is I'll play, I'll play something to, that gives you a sense of how natural it sounds. Because one thing that you care about speech is um, how, how human-like does the voice actually sound. So this is a Spanish speaker, this is a male speaker.
0: So that's
1: purely generated. And the, the beauty of what we've created from a text-to-speech standpoint is that the voices that we've created are actually quite suitable for video. So it doesn't sound like an off-the-shelf Siri or Google Home voice, which are impressive in their own rights and they deserve all the credit. But we've created voices that are so fluid in their own right that they actually can be used for video and they're when we ask people and we do crowdsourced evaluations they're often indistinguishable from human speech
0: wow have you uh, translated yourself into spanish or german yet
1: no i haven't done that but <laughs> it is it is one that we probably should do
0: yeah
1: um what i'll also show just to give you a sense as well of carrying over characteristics into a target language i'll play first i'll play you an actual recording from a movie Uh, We'll give, James has already promised 100 pounds to any listener who can identify what movie this is from. That's right. Um, Here's the actual, uh, so this is a recording from an actual movie. Max, the gifts, we have to return them. And then this is us trying to carry over that same emotion, but in the target language. Max, los regalos, tenemos que devolverlos. So hopefully you could have heard that jump at the end. Again, that's trying to replicate the, the emotion that was expressed in the source language. Now, granted, that was from part of our research. We don't, we don't have that uh, yet pushed out in production, but and we actually should hopefully soon. But the point is, again, that what's critical when it comes to entertainment or to anything that you're consuming as a form of media is the way in which you present the emotions that you articulate. And that's why we think it's so crucial to port those over because we don't think we're going to live in a world where you have a finite set of generic voices that are applied across all audiobooks, podcasts, and videos. We think that they're actually going to be quite quite dynamic, expressive, and adaptive, and that's effectively what we're trying to do
0: amazing well, thank you for that clarification because it's awesome to to see what is the long term vision of the technology, what is the medium kind of term application of paper cup uh, just to steer us back a little bit towards my original question i'm curious like are you worried that, you know, now that we have such robust language technology, people can use this to, you know, imitate Boris Johnson's voice right in Spanish or something else, yeah. right? Is there, is there some concern that this is gonna fall into the wrong hands? So
1: I, I, think, I think that has to be a concern. I think it's slightly less of a problem for us in the sense that we're trying to actually generate people's voices in languages they don't speak, so it should be quite clear that it's it's actually synthetic plus we try and do a really good job of making it very clear on on videos that we generate and upload online that it was brought to you by paper cup and that it was it was created by a machine um and then i think what you'll see over time is that you'll see mechanisms that are developed that are will help flag uh things that are clearly generated so some ideas that have floated around are that you can introduce some sound artifacts into the generated voice that are imperceptible to the human ear. But if you're using a detector, like a more sophisticated detector, you can actually pick up. So I think, I think Like digital
0: fingerprinting and like an audio watermark essentially. Yeah.
1: Exactly that. So I think as, as speech, as text to speech systems evolve, we'll see more of those audit mechanisms in place.
0: Yeah. Smart. Do you speak other languages? Uh, I, I'm conversational
1: in Hebrew. I used to say that I'm conversational in Spanish, but I don't think I deserve that credit anymore. <laughs>
0: yeah, me either. It's a shame. Us, uh, us Americans are so lazy when it comes to that. I got to work on it. Yeah. Do you
1: speak other languages?
0: I studied Spanish in high school and college. Uh, have sadly not not maintained it, but um, I do. I do love other languages, right? I love to travel. Um, you know, try to learn little bits of vocabulary or key phrases, you know, in the in the native language when I go to a new place. But um, yeah, it's certainly a lot of room for improvement there.
1: Yeah. yeah. What What do you think could be an interesting application of our technology? Everyone comes up sometimes with wild ideas. I'm curious, what what to you could be the most exciting or compelling?
0: Sure. Well, it's funny. So I told you about my grandfather, who was a commander in the Canadian Navy, and then later went on to work for NATO. And what he did is he ran the translation, the localization service for NATO, right? He was in charge of all the translators, you know, when they would have the big meetings to ensure that people could communicate. And so obviously that's a that's a natural um, opportunity. You know, the applications for media and entertainment are, are I think, pretty obvious. Um, you know, I guess it'd be really cool to see the technology used in places where, you know, it's really needed and it would solve um A crisis. I think what comes to mind is uh, the legal system, right? Like in the U.S., right, for immigration cases, or uh, in situations in which you know the 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 person doesn't speak the lingua franca but wants a fair trial. I think there are amazing opportunities for it to be applied and kind of for humanitarian purposes or for legal defense purposes. um, There's probably some really cool approaches to leverage it for.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Especially on the communication side, I think it's really interesting. So, even to be honest, even on the educational side, I also get quite excited. We haven't unfortunately spent time on this just yet. It is a function of just resource and capacity. But I love the idea of saying, "Take, take Udemy, take um, you know, take Coursera or yeah, Khan
0: Academy, yeah, masterclass, yeah, or,
1: that, or, or masterclass. All of these have such such powerful thought through." quality educational content that should, like everybody should have the same and equal access to. And I think one ambition that we have as a company certainly is, is on that educational piece where you can just provide access to the same quality content that we're privileged with, but to other people in the world who don't necessarily have the same thing.
0: Yeah. Amazing. It, you know, it's interesting. It seems like audio is having a renaissance. I mean, well, here we are on a podcast I mean, albeit there's a video format, but also an audio format as well. And we've got smart speakers, right? We've got you know all of this kind of new advances in the audio space do you foresee audio becoming the dominant operating system you know people are theorizing hey in a few years we'll all be using voice to interact with our devices we won't rely as heavily on the keyboard and mouse or even on touch screens on mobile devices we'll just talk to our devices is, is that kind of what you see coming
1: I want to someone from the team mentioned it uh, like basically and like phrased this quite well where they said, if you think about it, like human speech is actually the most elementary form of communication. Even with my, even with our baby daughter, is now fifteen months old. who hopefully heard scream. Like the richness in spoken word is incomparable to written text, and I think it's a medium where you're able to tell a narrative or express yourself in a way that text can just never compete with, and that's why I think. That's why I think it's so engaging. Like it, it shocks me that Bill Simmons or any major podcaster, Joe Rogan can speak for an hour, 45 or two hours, yet they have engagement scores that are through the roof and the retention throughout the entire podcast is still super impressive. And I think it's because it's just so engaging when, when, when you speak with somebody who can engage in debate and just speak with a real sense of knowledge in a certain domain or with a real sense of interest or passion. I, yeah, I, I think it can, it can really do wonders in terms of how receptive an audience will actually be to it, which is why I think we are seeing, like you said, a renaissance in audio because it's voice-based.
0: Yeah, and hopefully too, the types of technology that you're developing can preserve other languages or preserve a sense of culture around language, right? Language is often uh, one of the most important elements of, of you know, underpinning a culture and, and kind of establishing that tie to history or the tie to the past, right? So as an example, we have two incredibly, uh, you know, talented team members here at Paladin, um, one of which is Dutch and the other is Swedish. And they're, they both, you know, came to the US, they have visas and work with us here, but, uh, you know, both grew up speaking different languages in addition to English, right? They speak English better than most Americans, right? The, the command that people in the Nordics or the Netherlands have of the English language is incredible, right? And that's the case in many parts of Europe, uh, which is, you know, kind of this artifact of, uh you know, a little bit of British imperialism and American colonialism and, you know, these, these, uh, these historical circumstances, which have uh, the nature of doing global trade and, and, a, and a having a a world economy has, has brought to the forefront certain languages, right? You think of English, Mandarin, um, Spanish, you know, maybe Arabic. And, and so these dominant languages have emerged due to the strength of these you know, geopolitical powers. And it's interesting to see how other languages might decline over time, right? For, for a period of time, French was the default language for politics. And now yeah. that's, you know, in large part shifted to English. Uh, so hopefully this technology can help preserve, uh, language or, or, let people still learn their native language. In addition to, you know, many are probably still learning, um, one of these more popular languages as a way to consume mass entertainment today, but that might not be necessary in the future.
1: Mm. Yeah. I, I, would hope that that's, that that's an implication of, or, or at least a second order effect of our technology, because you're right, there is this, I don't want to call it. It is in almost arrogance of of English that it should be the spoken language and the used language across all channels and mediums. But I think, yeah, the idea of saying you can take um, some form, like some dialect in, I don't know, in, in a country in Africa and just allow creators or artists or just individuals to still express themselves to a wider audience, but still retain their own language i think is quite a powerful vision of what our technology can be i think we're we're still quite far from that but i would hope that when when you look into the future of what Papercup can be and how Papercup can be a generation defining company it's exactly that type of application that i think is compelling
0: awesome what's coming next if you had to make three predictions for the future of media and entertainment what would they be
1: oh god we actually just had a we have paper cup universities, which are basically talks that people in, in the team give every other week, and we just had one today on uh, predictions of the future by uh, an ex-consultant who focused on this. So I could I could just uh, I can just plagiarize her five predictions, but they would be relevant <laughs> to this. Um, what do I think in terms of media voice or or
0: all of the or- above? Yeah, anything that's interesting or exciting to you. I think, I
1: think well, 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 one thing that we'll see when it comes to specifically speech and dubbing is that I think it's quite foreign to a lot of people in the sense that they either are accustomed to consuming subtitles or are English speaking, so don't even get exposure oftentimes to localized content because it's often produced in English. So what I, so one thing that I do anticipate is that it'll be far more, it'll be almost standard behavior and far more acceptable for a video to be watched according to whatever you actually want without you defaulting to whatever the country standard is. So this concept that the French really like dubs, but in the Nordics it might be different. I think will be abstracted away and instead it'll just come down to personal preference. So if you happen to like, The dubbed version, then that's what you're going to watch. And I think all the platforms and all producers will have to basically offer optionality. I think that's one. And what's interesting is that Netflix has also really tested this hypothesis because they've taken a lot of their foreign productions like Dark, which I think is in German, Money Heist, which is an original Spanish production. They've basically A B tested the subtitled and dubbed version in English in the US. And very surprisingly, they've seen that. I think the number was over 60% of people or sorry, it was actually, I think over 70% of people were far more likely to complete the series and watch more content on Netflix had they defaulted to the dubbed version, hmm. which is very counterintuitive because if you ask, if you ask somebody in the U S like, do they like dubbed content? Usually the immediate instinctive answer is no, Like, I can't stand it. It's so jarring. It's so odd. Yeah. And I think that's really being tested now. And I think if we're seeing that in English speaking markets, so too we'll see that elsewhere. And I think that the, the trend will just compound such that we'll live in a place that all content will be consumable in any language. And whether that be through subtitles or voice.
0: Very cool. And what does the future hold for paper cup?
1: What does it hold for paper cup? Um, we've done a lot today i mean the team's the team's honestly incredible i like it really really is an inspiring team to work with incredibly right really just talented uh really invested in what we're doing and have already done a ton like we've we've now we're now in we can now translate into spanish uh german and english we're about to launch italian portuguese and french um so we've added a bunch of languages we've gotten papers accepted into the biggest speech conferences. Um in the world. We filed a bunch of patents where we've created the first workflow translation tool for videos in the market that our product team launched. And we're also starting to see the results. I mean, even the past few months, we were hitting around 10-15 million views across all the translated content, which might sound like a small number, but the idea that 10-15 million people at the stage we're at right now watched video content they otherwise wouldn't have never seen is i don't know gives us i think gives us the energy to say why can't it be ten a thousand, 10,000, thousand ten thousand hundred thousand times that figure yeah duplicate across different content verticals and languages so yeah we already have done a lot but to your point a hell of a lot to do so what's next is more languages more expressive and emotional voices more forms of content that we can actually tackle so i still think we have a lot to prove and a lot to do but uh, feels like we're in a really good place and on a good trajectory.
0: That's remarkable. We're well, definitely excited to to follow the continued success and stay tuned for uh, you know the future applications and even the new languages coming aboard. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely, Jesse. One of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the show is, uh, you know, if if you were starting a new business in the media and entertainment space today, what would you do? And the thought behind the question is, you know, as an entrepreneur, there's often a part of your brain that you just you can't turn it off, right? You're constantly thinking about that next business idea, maybe it's returning to the recruitment platform, maybe it's something totally different, but any, any white space out there that kind of jumps to mind?
1: Specifically in media and entertainment?
0: I mean, it could be anything, but, you know, if there's anything that probably touches on media and entertainment, that's great, and if it's something totally off the wall different, that's fine, too. Mm.
1: So, yeah, specifically for media and entertainment, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot um, we're seeing a lot in what I think Legion coined as the passion economy where you're seeing creators that are able to monetize their content in ways which doesn't just depend on the outsized audience of YouTube as in if you just upload on the likes of YouTube and Facebook and rely on programmatic advertising you have to generate millions upon millions of views in order to monetize whereas now we're seeing a lot of tool sets which are being created which allow like any form of a creator to actually monetize their content without needing to reach those numbers. So the, the most obvious example being Patreon, which now I think they just announced recently, they are on track to distribute around a billion a year. They have 200,000 creators. And I I think that this is just the start of what we'll see. So I think there's a lot of tool sets that you can build. One area that we're really interested in is basically distribution of content. So how do you help creators with translated content because it's actually unclear. Studios might know where to sell the rights and might have local distribution partners or might actually have their own and operated um, platforms in foreign territories. But if you're an individual creator, you don't. So I think there's a really big question there about how do you facilitate that distribution, um, which I think could be a really interesting space.
0: Very cool. And Jesse, where can people find out more about you and more about Papercup?
1: um I don't think there's that many more interesting things about me other than, <laughs> other than basketball fascination which I'm happy to do an 18-hour podcast on
0: oh yeah uh, but, tell, uh, tell me about your fascination with basketball my fiance and I just uh finished watching The Last Dance which oh, is really? yeah simultaneously the most inspiring and perhaps the most like disheartening thing you can ever watch especially during quarantine because it's like michael jordan and the you know the 90s bulls achieving greatness it just like pumps you up but at the same time you're like "Ah, and i'm stuck inside
1: (laughs) i yeah i do hear that what's the fascination i don't know it's it's a game that requires you 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 need to really understand where like how your teammates are thinking and approach the game themselves because once you see the disconnect between two players, it's become so fragmented that you have to rely on a one-to-one game. So I just love the concept of trying to actually constantly balance out the, the strength and the approach that your teammates taking and figure out the right way of doing it. Um, and I love seeing that sort of chemistry in the NBA when you, 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 you see when there are two players that just gel and that just know how to interact and play with one another and use, the court and use the rest of the team and the players in the ball to their advantage to actually score and be proficient. That's the fascination. But if people want to find out more, uh, yeah, LinkedIn, reach out to me at Jesse at papercup.com. Uh, we have a website papercup.com and hopefully that should give you a sense of what we do and how we do it.
0: Well, Jesse, thanks again, buddy. This was super fun. Uh, always great to chat with you and uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Sounds
1: good. Thanks a lot, James. Good to be here.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.